I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 18 through 25 this morning. In the 17th century, John Bunyan, a Puritan, wrote a book called Pilgrim's Progress. Odds are pretty good that you've read it, or at least heard of it. It's the best-selling book ever written in English. The Bible's the best-selling book of all time, but of course it wasn't written in English. But John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, has sold more copies than any other book ever written in English. That's incredible. And at the beginning of the story, the main character, named Christian, sets out from the city of destruction, and he's burdened by his own sin, and he, he knows he needs to get out, and he meets a character named Evangelist. It's an allegory, so the characters have these names that kind of clue you in as to what their role is going to be. And Evangelist warns Christian to flee from the wrath that is to come. And he points him in the direction. And so Christian sets out on this journey. And as he goes, two of his neighbors come out and try to persuade him to stay, to turn around and stay in the city of destruction. Their names are obstinate and pliable. And obstinate is rather stubborn. As Christian appeals to them, he says, I'm resolved. I'm not turning back, but you come with me. And obstinate refuses. But pliable, as his name suggests, He's easily convinced to join Christian on this journey when he hears Christian speak of the joys that he is after. Christian tells him of an inheritance incorruptible, an endless kingdom to be inhabited, an everlasting life, crowns and glory to be given us, no more crying nor sorrow. And Paul says, that sounds wonderful. And he joins Christian on this journey. But shortly after setting out, both Christian and Pliable together fall into a bog. And it's named the Slough of Despond. And as they sink down in the Slough of Despond, Pliable immediately takes offense and becomes angry at Christian. And he says this, Is this the happiness you have told me all this time of? If we have such ill speed at our first setting out, what may we expect between this and our journey's end? What happened to the promises that you told me of? Where's the joy? Where's the glory? Where are the crowns? If this is what we have to look forward to, I'm out of here. And just as easily as Pliable was persuaded to join Christian, he's persuaded to turn back. That gap between What he expected and what he experienced was so great that he grew disillusioned and he turned around. Pliable wrongly concluded that the promises were not worth the trouble. And if only he understood that it was just the opposite, that the trouble that he encountered at the beginning was not even worth comparing with the glory that was to come. We left off last week, Romans 8, 17, where we saw if you are united to Christ, then you are a fellow heir of God with Christ. And if you're united to Christ by faith, then you can expect that you will suffer with him and you will also be glorified with him. You will share in his sufferings and you will share also in his inheritance. If you suffer with him, you will be glorified with him, Paul said in Romans 8, 17. But the reality and the intensity of suffering in this life 
is enough to cause some who profess faith in Jesus Christ to turn away, like pliable, to become disillusioned, disappointed, despondent, thinking the Christian life does not deliver all of the promises of joy and happiness that I believed early on. Some who profess faith are tempted to quit when they do not immediately see those promises of God coming to fruition in their lives. So what is it for you that most tempts you to disillusionment in life? It could be that you are in a marriage that you have found to be much harder than you ever expected. Not what you envisioned when you got married. Or maybe you found parenting to be much more challenging than anyone ever told you. You're in for more than you bargained for. Or you're stuck in a a job. Those are just the circumstances that provoke for us these thoughts. This is harder than I thought. This is more difficult. This is more unpleasant than I thought. It might be some chronic pain or illness in your life, some physical affliction. Or maybe your life has just been nothing but a, a cakewalk. I mean, you've never suffered so much as a broken bone. And for you, the question is, what is it in your life that if you lost it today, would cause you, like pliable, to become angry and embittered and disillusioned. You think, everything's fine, I'm good with following God for now, so long as I never lose this. My health, my money, my job, pliable, like many, fell victim to a tragic misunderstanding of the Christian life. And in Romans 8, 18 through 25, Paul takes aim at that very kind of disillusionment thinking by showing how the the hope of matchless glory will sustain you through the most distressing afflictions you will ever meet in this life. So I want to invite you, if you're physically able, to stand with me as we read God's Word. We stand out of our reverence for God and His Word because this Word is authoritative and it's true without error. And it opens the eyes of the blind and it gives life to our souls. So let's read it and hear it and believe it. Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but Because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that addresses us as sons and daughters with glorious promises, with vast hope, with profound encouragement. You stabilize our souls week after week after week, day after day after day, 
verse after verse after verse with your words and your spirit whom you have given us. And so we pray that this word that you have spoken, that it would land on receptive hearts that believe it. Oh God, overcome every attitude of unbelief here. All hardness of heart, all bitterness, all doubt, all rebellion against you and cause this word to be believed in our hearts that we would trust in you through the sufferings of this present time in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The main point of this passage is stated in verse 18 right off the bat when Paul says, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That is, your future is so glorious that your present afflictions are are insignificant by comparison. Your future is so glorious that your present afflictions, whatever you're going through or whatever you might go through tomorrow or 10 years from now, those afflictions are insignificant by comparison. And that truth is meant to function in your soul so that the reality of your future starts to do something in you today, starts to produce in you endurance and hope and joy already in the midst of whatever present afflictions and sufferings and trials and distresses you are facing. When you are convinced that you will enjoy the matchless glory of God forever, you will be able to endure distressing afflictions now. The hope of matchless glory to come in the future. That hope will sustain you. It will. God guarantees that it will sustain you through the most distressing afflictions. And so the Spirit of God means to use this passage to convince you that that glory is matchless. That's what God wants to do in your heart with this text, that your eternal future in Christ is glorious beyond comparison. So, So how does that work? How do you get that hope of matchless glory deep down in your soul so that you're sustained in the trials of life. I think there are three parts here in this text, and they're not like sequential steps that you move on from one to the next and you leave the other one behind. I think they're concurrent parts, all three of these happening together. Acknowledging present sufferings, anticipating future glory, and persevering in hope. Acknowledge present sufferings, anticipate future glory, persevere in hope. All three of those things working together. So let's take those one at a time. Acknowledge present sufferings. Look again at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. When Paul says that these present sufferings are not worth comparing, he's not denying present sufferings. He's not a stoic. He's not an escapist. He's not just a smile and fake it no matter what because pretend like the pain doesn't exist and life isn't hard. He's magnifying future glory by acknowledging and accounting for the reality of these present sufferings. He he speaks here in verse 18 of the sufferings of this present time. And in verse 20, he talks about creation subjected to futility and in bondage to corruption, verse 21. Verse 22, the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth, he says. When Paul's speaking of creation here, I understand him to be referring to everything God made before humans on the sixth day. The entire 
non-human universe. All creation, everything else that God made other than, than humans. I, I get that from the fact that Paul distinguishes between creation and humans in verse 23 when he says, not only the creation, but we ourselves grown inwardly. So, so there's a distinction here. Man and all creation that's not man. Groaning, bondage, corruption, futility, pain, sufferings. These are realities in the world in this present time. But Scripture not only acknowledges, yes, life is hard, it actually accounts for suffering. It explains it. It tells us why. Why suffering exists. Not, not just in humans, but throughout the entire created world. And it explains why you have this deep sense that things are not the way they should be, even though you've never known anything different. Think about that. You've never known anything different than life in the world the way it is, and yet why is it that we all have some sense it shouldn't be this way? Atheistic, evolutionary materialism cannot account for suffering. The view that matter is all that exists there is no transcendent, supernatural, relational father who created it all. That worldview cannot account for suffering in the world. Atheists think they have a problem with evil. They don't even have evil in their worldview. In that universe, creation isn't groaning. Creation doesn't care. It's all immaterial. Only the Christian story can account for the reality of suffering. And In verse 20, Paul writes, For the creation was subjected to futility, not Willingly, not by its own choice, but because of him who subjected it in hope. The word translated futility there means emptiness. And what Paul most likely has in mind is when God pronounced that curse on creation when Adam sinned and rebelled in the garden. We read in Genesis 3, 17 through 19, God says, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God created the earth to be fruitful, to be filled, to flourish. But God cursed the ground with futility when Adam sinned. And because the ground was cursed, man would suffer pain in return for toil and work. What would Adam have to show for all of his labor? The, the ground would yield thistles and thorns, just blisters in return for his work. We see that pattern repeated throughout the law and the, the prophets. When God speaks of the blessings that come to those who trust him and obey him, he describes blessings in terms of the Garden of Eden, fruitfulness, flourishing. And when he warns of the curses that come with covenant disobedience and unfaithfulness, it's in terms of this futility, work and work and work and nothing to show for. Listen to Deuteronomy 28, 38 through 40. You shall carry, this is the curse if you're unfaithful to God, you shall carry much seed into the field and shall gather in little for the locust shall consume it. You shall plant vineyards and dress them, but you shall neither drink of the wine nor gather the grapes for the worm shall eat them. You shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with the oil for your olive shall drop off. All the work, none of the blessings, none of the fruitfulness, 
Romans 8, along with the rest of Scripture, then acknowledges the realities of life in a fallen world. All creation, Paul says, is groaning, laboring, longing, and so are we. By the way, one of the problems with atheistic materialism, that, that worldview, and its failure to understand why creation is groaning as it does, is that that worldview believes in the unlimited potential of human technology and science. Just looks at the world and thinks, we should be able to eliminate all problems, all sickness, all disease. Which is why we saw the goalposts move from two weeks to flatten the curve to there should be zero infections, zero people getting sick, zero people dying, because the ultimate hope is man should be able to solve these things. This shouldn't be happening. We can fix it. Rather than an awareness, we live in a fallen world, and all creation is groaning because of our sin at the root. It's a sin problem. Notice in verse 18, Paul speaks of sufferings, plural. He has in mind a wide variety of afflictions. And toward the end of this chapter, in verse 35 in Romans 8, Paul names several specifics. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. All kinds of sufferings and afflictions that are part of life in a fallen world. And we know from 2 Corinthians 11 that Suffering in Paul's own life ranged all the way from the wear and tear of travel and the toil of work to imprisonments and beatings and shipwrecks. So the sufferings of this present time, they're, they're not limited to, to martyrdom, like if somebody holds a gun to your head and says, deny Christ or else. It just encompasses the whole range of hardships of life in this fallen world. And in verse 23, Paul says, we, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There, there's this, you've heard that phrase, already, not yet. Just a few verses ago, last week, we saw Paul says, we already have the spirit of adoption as sons. And here he says, we're waiting for our adoption as sons. So which is it? We're already sons and daughters, and we are waiting because we have not yet stepped into the fullness of that. And so in the meantime, we're groaning, longing for the redemption of our physical bodies to be free from sickness, weakness, and death. Suffering encompasses all of that. But Scripture not only acknowledges suffering and, and accounts for it, it completely reframes suffering and puts it in, Completely different perspective for us. Back to verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be re revealed to us. If all of the groaning and the bondage and the corruption and the futility and the pain is real, how can Paul say it's not worth comparing? Think of it this way. Is our son big or small? And the answer to that question doesn't change the actual size of the sun, but is it big or small? Maybe you've heard those comparisons just so we can fathom it a little bit more. If the earth were the size of a golf ball, the sun would be 15 feet high. It's like 109, 110 times the diameter of the earth. It's, it's big compared to us. We're small. It's pretty big. 
Its diameter is like, I don't know, 800,000 miles or something. You know, like what a Honda does in its lifetime. It's big to us. However, there's a star called Canis Majoris, which is Latin for big dog. You've heard about that star, maybe? If the earth were the size of a golf ball, Canis Majoris would be the height of Mount Everest. Our sun would be 15 feet tall. Canis Majoris would be the height of Mount Everest. Is the sun big or small? I mean, if we were to try to put like a scale drawing of Canis Majoris on the wall here, our sun wouldn't even register. We couldn't even put a dot big enough to depict our sun. By comparison, something rather large can suddenly look inconsequential. That's what Scripture does with our sufferings by holding out this matchless glory that awaits us in the future. So, while we acknowledge present sufferings, we must do so while we anticipate future glory. Look at verses 19 through 22. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Paul's point here is to heighten your anticipation and your longing for your future glory by showing you that all creation is already longing for your future glory. The word translated here, eager, longing, verse 19, according to one lexicon, means to wait with head raised and eyes forward toward the horizon, fixed on the point from which the expected object is to come. John Stott says it depicts somebody standing on tiptoe, craning, stretching the neck in order to be able to see. Can you picture creation on its tiptoes, longing to see? When I was a kid growing up in Chicago, my dad took me to a Chicago Bulls game in the early 90s when Michael Jordan was playing. And after the game, he said, let's go. We went down quickly to the hallway where the players walked. This was in Chicago Stadium. They walked from the court down this hallway to the locker room. And Bulls players are coming past us. Bill Cartwright, seven foot one. And I had his card and I handed it to him and I'm just staring up at this giant. And all of a sudden, a wall of security guards came and there's just this commotion of activity excitement rising and all the fans who were down in that hallway because the moment had arrived that we were all there for. Michael Jordan was coming down the hallway. Line of security guards in front of him clearing the way. So my dad put me on his shoulder so I could see over the crowd and catch a glimpse in person of Michael Jordan. There's no debate, the greatest of all time. Anticipation and attention you ever notice how, how contagious it is? Like, if 20, 30 people in the front of the room suddenly turn their heads to the back, the rest of you would turn around and check to see what they're looking at. If, if a crowd of people suddenly gathers somewhere, you might not even know what they're gathering to see, but you start to gather too to see if you can see over them, what are they looking at? Attention has this magnetic gravitational pull. When attention is drawn to one place, it draws in more attention. And Paul's saying, creation has its eyes forward on this future, so should you. You should be looking this way too. What is creation looking and longing for? Verse 18 says, the glory that's to be revealed to us, or some translations say, in us. 
Verse 19, the revealing of the sons of God. Verse 21, the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We would not dare to believe this if Scripture didn't reveal it. It would, it would seem blasphemous to us unless Scripture itself said this. The glory of the children of God. We saw last week in Romans eight seventeen that we are heirs of God. We're fellow heirs with Christ. We will be glorified with Christ. And in October, we're going to get to Romans eight thirty, where Paul says that those whom he justified, he will also glorify. Those whom he justifies, he also glorifies. But it's not just Romans 8 where we get this. It's everywhere in Scripture from the very first chapter. Creation was made to flourish in the freedom under the dominion and rule of Adam, the first human, and Adam's sons. And in Genesis 1, God blessed Adam with dominion over all creation. In Eden, there was only one tree that Adam was not allowed to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And some think that the knowledge of good and evil means like the firsthand knowledge of evil because you commit evil, but that can't be right because Genesis 3.22, God says, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Surely God doesn't know evil in a firsthand kind of way because he does evil. He does not do evil. Others think the knowledge of good and evil just means telling right from wrong, but that doesn't make any sense. Adam knew it was wrong to eat from the tree even before he ate from it. And why would God not want Adam to know the difference between right and wrong? The view of that tree I find the most convincing is that the knowledge of good and evil refers to the maturity to rule and exercise authority. When kings rule, they make judgments. They discern in difficult cases. It requires maturity. And Adam's sin was grasping for that authority before God said he was ready for it. Listen to Deuteronomy 139. Scripture in several places speaks of childish immaturity in terms of the lack of this knowledge. It says in Deuteronomy 1, as for your little ones and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there to the promised land. Listen to Solomon, King Solomon. When he prays in 1 Kings 3, he becomes king. Listen to how he prays. I am but a little child. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. I'm a little child, and I'm stepping into this position of authority and kingship where I'm supposed to govern. I need discernment between good and evil of a mature nature. The the point is, Adam was made to rule and reign over creation. But when he ate that fruit prematurely, his rebellion plunged all of creation into decay and death. Adam, the man, was the covenantal head of creation. And because of his sin, all creation is cursed with this futility. But as we saw in Romans 5, Jesus Christ is the better Adam, the new head of humanity as well as all creation. It's so much bigger than we first thought. He is perfectly righteous. He has reached full maturity. He has been crowned the king of creation. And you, Christian, because you are united to Jesus by faith alone, you are a co-heir with him. And you will share in his glory forever. I love Hebrews 2, 6 through 9. The author says, it has been testified somewhere, citing Psalm 8. Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him? What are we 
What, what is the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. That's what scripture is talking about when it's talking about believers being glorified. Now, in putting everything, the author goes on in verse 8, in subjection to him, man, humanity, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned already with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. At present, we don't yet see creation subjected to man in glory, but we do already see Jesus crowned with this glory, and so we know it's going to happen. And we know that we're going to share with him in that. And that's the moment all creation is longing for. The, the salvation that Jesus accomplished is just so much bigger than so many people get. Sometimes we conceive of salvation like our souls will float off into this immaterial paradise forever. No, Jesus died to redeem the universe and to restore it to the way that God intended for it to be under the rule and the dominion of Jesus and his brothers and sisters, his fellow heirs. That's why scripture speaks of the saints reigning with him forever. And when you the children of God come into your inheritance at the resurrection, that is when creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption and decay. No wonder creation is on its tiptoes looking, longing for that day. And when you're convinced that you will enjoy that glory with Christ forever, then you'll persevere in hope. That's what produces endurance and hope. Verses 24 and 25, For in this hope we were saved, now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees, but if we hope for what we do not yet see, we wait for it with patience. Romans 8, 18 through 25 is about the tension of waiting. Waiting for this matchless glory in the future while we endure brokenness in the present. The, the text repeats words like waiting, longing, groaning, hoping, and Paul reminds us at the end, just a, a very, should be an obvious thing, and yet we forget. Pliable didn't understand this. Hope is oriented to the future. You can only hope for something that has not yet happened, by definition. If it's happened, you don't call it hope, because it's already happened and you already have it. But if it has been guaranteed to happen, guaranteed to you by the word of God, guaranteed to you by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, secured by the down payment of the Holy Spirit, then you can wait for it with confidence. It's going to happen. So what we already have is the hope. What we do not yet have is the thing we hope for. And so we wait. And the hope that we have already is a functional hope. It, it does something. It produces something in us. Verse 25, if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with Patience. Notice the emphasis here is on how you wait. The thing about waiting is that oftentimes you're in situations where you're going to wait one way or the other because the circumstances are outside of your control. The question is not, are you going to wait? You can't do anything about it. So you're going to wait. The only question is how you're going to wait. Are you going to wait anxiously, impatiently, 
bitterly or are you going to wait with patience? You have to wait one way or the other. So if we hope, we wait with patience. If we hope, we wait with patience. And patience is not the same thing as waiting itself, right? Sometimes we just picture patience like twiddling our thumbs and killing time. No, this is an active, dynamic waiting. This waiting, the Greek word, it implies endurance, perseverance, steadfastness, staying the course, being productive and fruitful while you wait in hope. Verse 23 promises you that you are not on your own as you wait. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. The, the Spirit of God dwells in you as the first fruits of renewed creation. The first fruits. Creation is futile, barren, cursed. You have in you the first fruits of the new creation. You know when Moses sent the spies into the promised land and it was fruitful beyond their, their wildest imaginations. It's, it says in, in Numbers that they cut off one cluster of grapes was so big they had to tie it on a pole between two men to carry it. We were like, we, you have not seen that blessing yet, have you? Grapes that size. We have the Spirit of God in us now, producing in us the life of God now to sustain us now in our sufferings. And there's one more anchor for your hope here in verse 20. The creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Who subjected creation to futility? Some argue that's talking about Adam or it's talking about the devil. But it says him who subjected it in hope. We can't say that Adam or the devil subjected creation in hope of anything. It's talking about God. God is the one who subjected the creation to futility. God is the one who pronounced the curse and he did it in hope. He did it with a purpose. He did it knowing that he was going to redeem it all by offering his own son to die for the sins of man so that man could be exalted to share in the glory of the Son of God and all things would be made new. He's proven it. He has proven that that hope He's doing it. He's accomplishing it. He proved it by raising his son Jesus from the dead and seating him at his right hand. And that's why hope for us is not blind optimism. It's not just wishful thinking. When we have this hope, we are sharing in the very hope that God has had forever. This has been the purpose of God from before the creation of the world. And so our hope is anchored in God's own hope. Do you have that? Do you share in that hope right now? Are you trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, for the resurrection of your body, for the fulfillment of every promise he makes, for the redemption of creation itself? That can be yours. That hope can be yours today as you trust in Jesus Christ. May that hope of matchless glory sustain you today and tomorrow and forever for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for speaking. 
reminding us, revealing to us, assuring us, convincing us. We want to be convinced by you. We want to trust you. We want to believe you. That is the disposition of our hearts. It's why we gather in your name under the authority of your word. May our thoughts be informed by your word. Not by the spirit of the age, not by headlines, not by the fears of our heart, but by your word. Give us hope. Hope of matchless glory because of Christ to whom we belong by faith. And be glorified in us, we pray. Amen.